All right, give me a second here. Get organized. Okay. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday, happy Sunday, happy Sunday. Let me get this done here. Oh, give me a second. Give everybody a few minutes to come in the room, and uh, we'll literally get this show on the road. Give me a second. Let me adjust my audio. Oh, there I am. There I am. There I am. There I am. Okay. Anyway, happy Sunday. Um, it's been a nice weekend. Busy, but nice. Busy, busy, busy. Ah, our problem child of a dog won't let me clip her claws, so I'm kind of trying to get creative here. Might have to call it a mobile groomer. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm going to be reading from the Lizzie Borden book, and uh, just a word of warning for people in that. Hang on a second. Hang on. Just a word of warning for folks because last week was pretty dark. <laughs> uh, the author really goes into Lizzie's head with this book. So you're going to get the whole thing, you know, of thinking like Lizzie, as Lizzie's plotting. And um, for a quick update, last week, Lizzie, uh, we, got, we were at the point where Lizzie had already murdered her stepmother. So this week we are at the spot where Lizzie's going about to murder her father. So I just want to let everybody know that that's the point we're at. Okay. Anyway, um, welcome. My name is Charlotte again. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. So I'm also the owner of the, try to, just a little bit here. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We're 35 strong up and down the state. And uh, we can help you with your paranormal needs if you think you have something going on in your house. Ah, well, Saturday's thing with Nancy, our, our special event, went very well. Real happy. And, uh, I mean, yesterday was Saturday. It's been a long weekend already. And uh, we're hoping to do something like that again at some point. Uh, I'm trying to find a mobile dog groomer. My dog just will not let me cut her claws, and they're getting long, and I'm working on it. I've tried like 800 different ways to do it, and I'm trying one more thing to see if I can possibly do this, you know, and uh, it's something I did. I had a uh, reactive dog, and uh, I, couldn't I couldn't take her to the groomers or anything like that, but she, she at least let me use a Dremel on her claws. This one <laughs> won't even do that, and she's not fighting or anything. She's just squirming out of it and you know, moving around and, and doing that kind of thing. She's only three years old anyway. But uh, I'm going to try one more thing that worked really well with the other dog was I did, I, I made a, um, I made a three, what is it, two foot by two foot board and put sandpaper on it. And then I was able to scrape her claws across the sandpaper. It doesn't say, it's not as bad as it sounds. Just, it's just the tips of the nails. You do it about 20 scrapes on each nail. And it worked really nicely. So I'm hoping maybe that's the answer to this, uh, but I'm thinking about a mobile groomer to come out and handle her. You know, I'd have to hold her and then the groomer would have to cut the claws because it's getting long and yeah. But anyway, outside of that, we're going to be reading um, Lizzie Borden today. And it's an interesting book and in that, you know, it starts out pretty much, you know, we were reading about the trial and the testimony at the trial. And that went on for the first, what, three or four chapters. And then all of a sudden, the fifth chapter it shifts gears and and um we're inside lizzie's head going, hearing her her thoughts 
as she's thinking about how she's going to commit these murders and, and how she's going to do them. And it was, it, it's been an interesting read, you know, inside the mind of a killer, literally, you know, if she, you know, assuming she actually did it. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. And I know a couple of people after I did the read last week commented that the book has suddenly turned really dark and, 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 and I admit it has turned dark, but, uh, that's because we're inside her mind right now. And again, we, we you know, um, we left off. She had just killed her mother. And she was contemplating not killing her father. But then I think she's, well, we all know how the story goes. So obviously she talked herself out of not killing him and went ahead and did the deed. So we're going to be hearing that part of the book today. You know, how she, and what her thought processes was when, process was when 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 she did give her father the the wax and it wasn't 40 it wasn't 41 wax right it was just wax so uh it should be an interesting uh read today the, I, I like the book you know i really do and then later on in the book which is interesting it, we're going to go into the fact that it's a bed and breakfast now of our b&b you know or, or overnight thing and in and the fact that it's haunted it's reportedly haunted so we're going to talk about that. And it's also, there's there's talk about maybe the other house that she had moved to after this house was also active. And maybe who, the possibility of who might be haunting her. <laughs> kind of, You kind of think, okay, you know, obvious who might be haunting her. But who knows, you know, you, you never know with these things. Give everybody a couple more minutes to come in and then we'll, uh, we'll start. And uh, hopefully it doesn't get too dark for anyone. I just want to remind everybody that it's uh, kind of, you know, it, it has taken a dark turn. Oh, my. But it's been a nice day. You know, I didn't have time to get out as much as I wanted to this weekend, but I did. I did, I did yard work and stuff, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. All right, let me open up my tablet, my antiquated tablet. Let me get that open. You'll hear the AT&T thing, you know, doo -doo 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 -doo, or T-Mobile or whatever this thing with AT&T is. I really wanted Galaxy Note 12, but they did not. AT&T didn't have the 12 at that time. They only had the 8. If I ever get another tablet, I want a 12. It's like reading a newspaper, you know. This one's running out of space, big time. And it takes a while to power up. Let me grab a drink of water here. I see Maurice is in the house. Pamela's in the house. I see other people are out there. Welcome. Um, thank you. If you're watching from Facebook, don't forget to click on the subscribe button. Oh, we just lost somebody. Must have been my drinking poos. Got to drink sometime. If you're watching from um, Facebook, please uh, follow. Hit that follow button. If you're watching from, try to remember these things. If you're watching from YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. There's a little ghost down there in the bottom right hand corner, and click on that. He's got a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on, and he um, will take you over to subscribe. And that way, when our videos do come up, boom. You'll, you'll know about it because we not only do uh, ghostly stuff, we do what I call normalized news, which, you know, 
could be anything from murders all the way to uh, abuse cases and feel good stuff and things like that. So we do that as well. We're also be we're also beaming out. I call it beaming. We're also beaming across Twitch today. So if you're watching from Twitch, thank you very much. Please follow. But the main thing is, you know, follow, follow, follow. Tell your friends about it while I'm doing this. Get them on to follow. Same thing with with uh, all the others. Okay. All right. So um, let me get in here. Kindle. This thing uses so much power. I just turned it on. It's down in it's down like 99% now. Fully charged. Okay. All right. We are at chapter 14. Again, to give you a step back with this book. Um, we have we went through the murder of her stepmother last week. And remember, her sister's out of town, so she's not home. So it's it's Lizzie. And the maid are home, and the maid is doing windows, right? Okay, and that's that, that that's the line they have is the maid is doing windows. But there were witnesses like all that all that day previous, you know, during this day, that saw the, her father out and about before all this went down. Okay, and the mother I think went went out too, or the stepmother went out and came back home before all this went down, or the mother, stepmother went out the day before. So leading up to this, there's been a lot of movement by people. And the reason why this went down, and, and I didn't know it, and uh, this is the first time, you know, I, I thought about, I even heard about this, was that they, they had owned land, some farmland, and I guess the stepmother was due to inherit, that. Uh, the father was changing the will, so the stepmother would inherit the farmland, and that's what set, set all this in motion, because Lizzie felt that her sister, uh, she and her sister were being cheated out, out of this land. So that's what put, that's what set all this in motion. And Lizzie had tried to poison them. In fact, she they were supposed to go up to the to, to this farm. And so she had bought rat poison or something and stuck it in the milk at this farm for them to drink. They never went, and some of the ranch hands got sick. Then after she got home, she put more in the milk, and then both her parents got sick. But it wasn't enough to kill them. And this is this is within a couple days of the murders that this happened. And not only that, the maid got sick drinking the milk. Okay, so I mean, she's she was trying. She was trying, you know, in different ways that that that, that she could try, you know, to do something to her mom, to, to, to her parents. All right. Okay. All right. So chapter fourteen, Thursday, August fourth, eighteen ninety-two, the hands of fate. John Moore sat in the living room of the Emory, of the Emory's at number four at Waybosset Street. A very pale and agitated Joseph Chatterhorn was sitting across from him, hunched over in the chair and practically running his soft, ruining his soft hat as he twisted in his hands. His brother J James was seated in an armchair next to him, looking none too pleased. Mrs. Emory was in and out of the room, catching snippets of the conversation. Her niece was in the kitchen, working on a cup of ch ch chamomile tea. Chamomile tea. I think I said that right. After being ill most of the morning, the mantel clock in the sitting room chimed ten forty-five. John Morris was clearly upset. He pressed Joseph to tell him again what had happened. The young man sputtered out that he was there early to the Borden house to pick up Mrs. Borden. 
He swore he was out front in the buggy at 9.45. He, he got hot and went and stood under a tree by the gate, but could see the front door plainly. He waited in that spot until some ladies, looking at a peddler's cart, told, took notice of him, and a maid came around the corner of the boarding house to clean the window near the front door. He didn't want to look like he was just hanging around, as the plan was to, was to be secretive about the whole thing. So he walked across the street and kept an eye on the door for Mrs. Borden to come out. It was hot. He had no shade there, and he heard the city hall clock strike 10, eight, 10 o'clock. He figured she would come now. That was the appointed time, but she didn't come out. He watched the maid move around the side of the house where he had just been standing, lugging a, lugging a wooden bucket. He watched her mop her forehead and push her bangs away. She didn't look like she felt really well. The minutes ticked by. He heard the big clock chime the quarter hour. It was 10.15. He had been told not to knock. Just wait for her to come out. He couldn't just stand there staring at the house. He began moving slowly south on the sidewalk, only to turn back and look again at the door. Back and forth he paced. His suit felt like an oven of, an oven of fabric. He worried people were going to notice his strange actions. There were men and women everywhere, loitering out in front of the store, across from him, talking to each other on the sidewalk, going in and out of the laundry just steps away from him. Time dragged on. The clock struck 10.30. He gave up. He would go back to the Emery's to, and see what to do. Something must have happened. He got into his buggy, took one last look toward the door with, num with number 92 next to it, and flicked the reins. He headed down 2nd Street, glancing back to see the maid closing up the large shutters of one of the two windows by the front door. He caught a glimpse of a young foreigner directly behind him, driving an ice cream peddler's cart. As Joseph told his story to his cousin John Morse, he could see how angry and nervous the older man was. Andrew Borden had already rung the Emery's twice asking where Abby was. The deal had to be done today. Emma Borden was staring out the window of the Brown Brownells parlor, not seeing anything in her worried state. Her stomach was clenched in panic. When Lizzie was in one of her moods, it could be frightening. It was like a runaway train of emotion, and anyone in her path was in danger of being pressed into the rails. She could change so quickly. One minute that unnerving calm looking at you as though you were a bug beneath glass. The next, her face would color, those same eyes flashed with a hate that withered and she would act out without thinking. There were no breaks. The family had learned to run for cover or just given her demands. The letter from Lizzie, Emma was clutching in her hand, worried her. She feared something terrible was about to happen. At 92 Second Street, Bridget finally managed to undo the three locks securing the front door and swung it open. A disgruntled Andrew Borden pressed in past her without a word. She noticed he was carrying a small white parcel. He swept his top hat from his head and planted it impatiently on the peg of the hall tree. Bridget shut the front door and returned to the sitting room to complete her window washing, leaving Andrew to rebolt the door. Seeing Bridget cleaning in the sitting room, Andrew walked into the dining room instead. No Abby. She didn't appear to be in any of the downstairs rooms. She must have gone out. Somehow they had missed each other. Perhaps John's cousin had gotten lost or gone to the wrong house. When he talked to John by phone only ten minutes earlier, he was told the young Chatterhorn cousin had not come back to Emery's, had not come back to the Emery's, so he must be with Abby downtown. She would realize they missed each other and return at any minute. 
There was still time. Andrew's head throbbed. He dropped the lock, still wrapped in the sleeve of the Providence Journal, into his Prince Albert coat pocket. He would add it to the other locks in the box in the barn later. He reached the inside pocket of the coat and removed the folded deed for the Swansea farm. It was several pages thick, resembling a small book, and laid, and laid it on the dining room table. Removing the coat, he laid it across the arm of the lounge chair that sat along the south wall of the dining room. Abby or the girls would sometimes lay there when the summer heat was too much to be up upstairs in the daytime. He preferred the sofa in the sitting room. Lizzie, who had seen many of her father's deeds and signed one with him for the fairy house, would know exactly what Andrew had in his hands. He picked up the deed and carried it to the dining room window, where the light was better. Looking out through the glass, Bridget had just washed outside. He noticed someone moving about in the, in the Churchill's kitchen. Paying no attention, he opened the deed and checked over a few of the conditions he had added there. Bridget walked into the kitchen. She was surprised to see Lizzie coming down the back stairs. Bridget had just heard the girl laugh at the top of the front stairs not five or ten minutes ago. Knowing the door separating Lizzie's and her parents' room was always locked, Bridget was confused as to how she came down. Let's see. Hang on a second. As Lizzie came tiptoeing quickly down the back stairs, she looked a little startled to find the maid in the kitchen, having assumed Bridget was in the sitting room. She hesitated for a split second near the back door. Bridget paused only a moment. Scenarios running through her mind of how Lizzie accomplished this feat of, of, of prestidigitation. But then continued on to the sitting room, anxious to be finished with her work. She climbed the small stepladder and ran the wet cloth over the top window pane. She thought she heard the sound of a small clink behind her and turned to see Lizzie near the sitting room mantel. Keeping her face a mask, the girl walked through the room, ignoring Bridget, and turned right into the dining room. Andrew was seated in his chair at the dining room table. He quickly put away the deed and stood up as Lizzie entered the room. Bridget heard Lizzie's voice speaking low and very slowly. Is there any mail for me? Bridget heard Lizzie ask her father. Mr. Borden answered, but his voice was too low for Bridget to hear his reply. She next heard Lizzie tell him that Abby had a note from a sick friend and had gone out. There was no reply from Andrew. Bridget climbed down from the stepladder and began washing the bottom half of the window behind the rocking chair. She saw Andrew come from the dining room into the kitchen and from the kitchen into the sitting room, picking up the key from the mantel to his bedroom. This was the first chance Bridget got a good look at him. His complexion was pasty, and his usual erect stature had given way to unseen weight. He looked sickly, tired, and stressed. Andrew walked through the kitchen, heading for the back stairs. Bridget finished the window and adjusted the two screens, pulling the chairs back into place where she had moved them to accommodate her ladder. She took the basin in the dining room and set it on the table. Lizzie was nowhere to be seen. Just as Bridget picked up her ladder from the sitting room and headed into the dining room, Andrew came back downstairs. He looked fidgety and distracted. As she placed her ladder before the window on the, north, on the northwest corner of the room, she looked back through the open dining room door and saw Andrew open the window in the sitting room nearest the front hall and sit down in the armchair there. He once again had a small book or papers in his hands and was looking over it. Bridget went for clean water in the kitchen. As she was coming back to the dining room, she passed the open cellar door. It sounded like someone was down there rummaging around. 
It could only be Lizzie, she thought, as Mr. Borden is out and Mr. Borden is in the sitting room. What can the girl be doing? Bridget moved her ladder to the last window in the dining room. She could no longer see Mr. Borden, excuse me, due to the wall behind her. Lizzie suddenly came in from the sitting room, walked through the dining room, opened the door to the kitchen, went through and shut it. There was no sound coming from the sitting room. She had heard no conversation pass between Lizzie and her father as the girl came through a few seconds before. The kitchen door opened and Lizzie entered the dining room, carrying a small ironing board and some handkerchiefs. She went back into the kitchen and returned with a flat iron. Bridget, had, Bridget hadn't heard her add fuel to the small coal fire in the stove. She glanced over and saw a roll of sprinkled handkerchiefs on the dining room table. Lizzie began to iron. There was still no sound from the sitting room. Are you going out today? Lizzie asked, watching Bridget's back as the servant wiped the top half of the northeast corner. She would have preferred not to have Lizzie watching her. She, she would have to slow down and do a polished job of it. I might. I might not, Bridget answered in her thick robe. I'm not feeling well. Well, Lizzie said, be sure to lock the door if you do, ignoring Bridget's illness. I may go out and Mrs. Borden is out on a sick call. Oh, who is sick, Miss Lizzie? Bridget asked. I don't know. A boy came to the door with a note. It must be in town. Bridget finished her lower window and placed a hand on her back. Lizzie had been ironing for eight or nine minutes. Three or four handkerchiefs were still rolled in the ball. The maid took her stepladder and basin and walked back into the kitchen. She replaced the ladder in the closet near the stove and crossed to the sink where she emptied the basin. She turned to the stove and hung a cloth behind the pipe to dry. Lizzie followed her to the kitchen. There's a sale of dress goods at Sargent's today, Lizzie said casually. Only eight cents a yard. Aye, and I'm going to have one, Bridget said tiredly. Without another word to Lizzie, she headed through the kitchen to the back stairs. She did not see the spasm of anger run along Lizzie's face, only the girl, only the girl heading back to the dining room. During the trial, Mr. Adams for the defense asked Bridget at the preliminary hearing about this conversation between herself and Lizzie. Bridget, I got through with my work and was in the kitchen. Then she told me there was a sale of dress goods at Sargent's, eight cents a yard. I said I would have one. That is all. Adams, did she not make the statement about the sale of dress goods at Frank Sargent's? That is the name. Two or three days before that, a big ad for a sale on dress goods ran Monday. Bridget, no, sir. Adams, did she ever tell you about any sale of Sargent's before that? Bridget, no, sir. Emma had a good many times told me about bargains. Adams, Miss Lizzie had not before. So far as you recollect? Bridget, no, sir. I went upstairs directly after that. Andrew's crime. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> the reason why I do that, and I'm just going to let you guys know, is because I've got this stuff. Uh, you know, I can't see close, so I've got it really enlarged. So when I hit the captions, sometimes I will I, I will see them as text. So I'll, I'll start reading the caption, then, then I jump ahead. Bridget Sullivan climbed the two sets of stairs to the attic. The temperatures rose with each step. As she passed Mr. and Mrs. Borden's room on the second landing, she wondered who the sick friend was Abby was visiting. The only person that ever called on Mrs. Borden was her half-sister, Mrs. Whitehead, who lived two streets over. It was also the only place her employer visited. But if Mrs. Whitehead was sick, would she have sent a messenger boy? Wouldn't her mother or another relative get a hold of Mrs. Borden? Besides, 
Lizzie said it was probably someone in town. The bed in Bridget's room looked inviting. Her head was still swimming, but at, but at least her stomach had settled somewhat. She still had at least 30 minutes before she had to stoke the stove fire to heat over the mutton soup for the new meal. She would just finish the front-facing window in the attic storage room that she had started yesterday and washed the window in her room, and she would be finished. The other attic windows were done. After the noon meal, she had the rest of the day off. Her mind focused on spending time with her friends downtown. Perhaps they would grab a pint. She crossed to the closet in her room and opened the door. An old wooden water tank sat on a shelf. She took a rag and dipped it in the clean water. With a sigh, she headed for the attic storage room. Lizzie stood in the dining room. She heard the soft sputtering sounds coming through the open sitting room door, only steps away from her. Her mind was awash with panic. Bridget didn't take the hints to leave. She couldn't force the maid to go downtown. It would look suspicious later. Even asking Bridget to go on an innocent errand at that time would come back to come back to her. It had to be her idea to go shopping or run a personal errand, but she had chosen to climb the stairs to her attic room instead. She had mentioned something about fixing her room. Andrew's sputters turned into a rattling snore. Lizzie felt nauseous. How could she kill him? She thought of Abby lying dead upstairs, her head sliced to a pulp. Could she do that to her father? It would have to look like the same maniac killed them both. That meant at least a dozen thrashes with the hatchet. The hatchet. She looked down at the weapon in her hand she had found in the cellar, while Bridget was busy with the dining room windows. It was older than the one she had used on Abby. She had thrown the new one away in the crow's yard, not realizing her father would choose this day of old days to come home early. She should have gone out after she killed Abby and not waited for Bridget. But if they found Abby and Bridget was the only one home, the girl would hang. The girl would hang. Lizzie couldn't do that to her. Taking deep gulfs of air, she laid the hatchet on the dining room table and bent over to untie her low-tie shoes. Slipping her feet from them, she carefully picked up her father's Prince Albert coat lying across the arm in the lounge. Andrew's snoring stopped. Lizzie stood frozen to the spot. Seconds passed, and his rattle resumed, catching at times as, as his fevered mind drifted in and out of sleep. Quickly, she slipped, the, she slipped into the coat, buttoning it to her chin. Pulling the lapels upward, the lower half of her face was covered to her nose. It hung on her to the floor like, like, like her father's seven-inch seven height difference, providing the, the perfect cloak. Something felt heavy on her right side, but she ignored it for now. She had to hurry. Lizzie picked up the hatchet, its weight so heavy now, in her hands. The handle was rough and the head top heavy, causing an ache to rise in her sore wrists. She swallowed over and over. There was no saliva in her mouth. A gag reflex threatened to betray her. Breathing hard, she took two steps to the open sitting room door and peered around the corner. Her head was right his head was right there. It was so close to her. His white hair looked wispy against the embroidered pillow he rested against. Her father's knees were bent, his feet obviously resting on the floor, although she couldn't see them from this angle. His hands rested limp limply in his lap. The small gold ring she had given him so long ago glinted in the soft light. Bridget lifted the attic storage window and removed the screen and began to run the wet rag over the dirty glass. She doubted Mrs. Borden would check her cleaning up here, so she hurried along, giving the window a mere spit polish. The city hall clock struck eleven. 
Below her, life on 2nd Street drifted by. The smell of chimney smoke from the mills, the sweat of horses, and an occasional whiff of the, uh, 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 excuse me, of the Quicoptian River rose and fell on the slight breeze. The sound of metal trappings and clopping horse hooves was as pervasive as ever. Inside the house, it was quiet. Andrew Bourne lay in the sitting room, his head turned to the right as he slept fitfully on the black horsehair sofa. His lips made small movements in his sleep, like that of a baby. Lizzie stepped into the room, her breathing short and erratic. She stood just inside the dining room door, her body at an angle, so that the blood would not reach her. Tears rimmed her eyes. Her head screamed, and with a final breath, she lifted the hatchet over her head and paused. Trembling, she took a deep breath, raised it higher into the air, and let it fall against the left side of her father's face. The thin skin split, exposing his cheekbone. The blade sliced through his nose and cut through his lips. His hands flew up in a convulsive muscle reaction and then fell. The fingers clenched. Her breath coming in panic burst, she lifted it again and brought it down. It cut through his left eyebrow, shattering his eye socket. His eye fell forward onto his cheek, sliced in half. In a frenzy of swinging motions, Lizzie hit him again and again, shorter blows that lessened the amount of blood that was forming. One of the first blows hit his artery, and an arc of arterial spray splashed across the wallpaper near his body. As she raised the hatchet on each subsequent blow, the cast-off blood hit the parlor door to her right and slightly behind her. One drop flew up to the ceiling, and several others splashed onto the framework of the kitchen door at the base of the couch. She kept striking, her mind a blur of emotion. Bridget, unaware of what was happening, two floors below her, picked up the screen to replace it into the front-facing attic window. Before she slid into place, she looked down to see Mary Doolin from next door past the side fence that separated the Kelly and Borden houses. The Kelly maid was hauling a pail and brush, finally finished with the outside windows. Bridget laughed and called down to her. Are you coming with me later, she yelled, her voice carrying down past the open sitting room windows. Lizzie stopped. The hatchet raised, ready to strike the mutilated head again. The sound of Bridget's voice calling down past the open sitting room window startled her. She froze, hatchet still raised. Chest heaving, she blinked and looked down at the bloody mess that had been her father's face. As if coming out of a trance, Lizzie stepped back in horror. Her hands were shaking now. She had lost count of the blows. Swallowing the bile rising in her throat, she wiped the bloody hatchet head on her father's coat, which she was wearing. She laid the hatchet on the couch arm and unbuttoned his coat with trembling fingers. She once again felt the weight pulling the jacket down on the right side. Reaching into the pocket, she felt something large and smooth. She pulled out a small white package, hastily wrapped in a newspaper sleeve. Unwrapping it, she found a large rusted lock. Her heart skipped and her eyes blurred. So like him to keep something broken and useless, she thought. She swallowed back the tears and laid the lock on the white sofa, tidy, dropping the wrapper to the floor. In parentheses, police found an unexplained rust stain on the sitting room sofa tidy near Andrew's head. A loud bang sounded from the attic. British was still raising and lowering windows. She wasn't taking her usual nap before fixing dinner meal. Lizzie would have to hurry. The maid could come down unexpectedly for something. Her Uncle John might show up, changing his mind about dining with him. One of her father's tenants might drop by. Panic shot through her, ner shot through her nerves until she thought she would come undone. 
Lizzie rolled up the Prince Albert and shoved it down slightly behind her father's head, wincing as the blood trickled into her into his shirt and dressing jacket. If blood is found on the coat, the police will assume it came from his wounds, she thought. She stepped to the deed he had left on the small table by the window and picked it up. Glancing only at the first page, she saw the words Swansea Platt. Anger overtook the terror momentarily, and her resolve came flooding back. Hurrying now, she picked up the hatchet, the lock, and the newspaper wrapper from the floor and ran to the kitchen. She set the lock on the big table and the hatchet on the floor. Taking the lid from the stove, she peered in. The coal was barely burning. She grabbed a stick of wood from the basket of kindling by the, by the stove and thrust it into the fire door, poking it into the only red glow of heat she could find. Quickly, she rolled the deed into a tight tube and placed it on the metal grate closest to the fire. She crumpled the newspaper wrapper and dropped it down into the hot coals. Grabbing the hatchet, Lizzie ran in stocking feet down the cellar steps. She turned on the faucet in the washroom and ran the cold water over the blade and handle. She had wiped most of the blood from the blade with her father's coat. The rest came off with a little scrubbing. The hatchet handle, however, was harder. It had small fissures running along the weathered grain. The blood had not been nearly as bad as with Abby's wounds, partly due to her father's long coat sleeves covering her hands to the fingertips. Lizzie let the hatchet lay in the sink beneath the running water as she washed the small blood droplets from the back of her fingers. She checked her nails and pushed back her sleeves to make sure her wrists were clean. Turning off the water, excuse me, it's hot in here, she stared at the hatchet. She couldn't throw this one away. Alfred Johnson would spot it as missing, and it would lead back to her. A murderer isn't going to take the time to look around the house for a weapon. He would bring his own. So what to do with it? She couldn't get all the blood out of the cracks of the handle. Bridget made one last swipe at her bedroom window. She looked down at the Borden's backyard. Several pears had fallen, which meant Mr. Borden would be bringing more into her kitchen in the morning. She sighed. How many pears did one family need? She glanced at the barn. At the barn door and froze. It was standing ajar. She must have forgotten to lock it after washing the windows. If Mr. Borden saw it, he would not be happy with her. Bridget opened her door and crept quietly down the stairs, grateful the, grateful the last flight to the kitchen was carpeted. As she reached the entry floor, she paused and listened. Nothing. Quickly, she hurried out the screen door, making sure to close it gently and ran to the barn. She quickly peeked inside and saw no one and shut the door, pinning the hasp. With a sigh of relief, she hurried back to the screen door. She entered, and just as she was about to head back up the stairs, she heard noise coming from the cellar. She paused and then gave it no more thought as she tiptoed up the back stairs to her room. Bridget walked around her bed to the window and looked down, just to make sure. The barn door was locked. She sat down on the edge of her bed with a grateful sigh. Only dinner to prepare, and the rest of the day was hers. At least the mutton broth was almost gone. She would be grateful for a nice joint of beef from the farm. A chicken, anything but more lamb. She swung her legs up onto the bed, up onto the bedspread and laid down, her head grateful for a moment of stillness. No sound floated up the stairs from below. Only the rhythm of the street sounds ran through her tired head. The cellar smelled of earthen brick. Outside, the sound a pounding stone was barely muffled. Lizzie hardly noticed. She had come up with a plan. 
The old starch box where she had found the shingling hatchet she had just used was filled with dusty tools. If she covered the hatchet in the dust, it would look like no one had used it for a while. She took it to the back room where the coal was kept. Ashes from the stove and furnace were everywhere. She rolled the hatchet in the ash and looked at it. Most of the ashes fell away as she moved it through the air. Carrying it back to the washroom, she ran water over it, returned it to the coal room, and rolled it again, being careful to only touch the small piece of wood at the top of the blade. And the bottom of the handle was one finger from each hand. The coarse white ash stuck to the blade of wood. She studied it and realized it wasn't enough. Someone might still look closely at it and see the blood on the handle. It would need to be broken. No one would suspect a broken hatchet as being a murder weapon. But it had to look like a break, not cut or sawn. Lizzie had often washed her father, washed as her father made things from wood. As a child, she had followed him about like a shadow. His carpenter's trade fascinated her, building beautiful things from plain wood. One of the tricks she had learned from him was how to break poles quickly. He would lay a chip of wood on the chopping block or table, lean the pole against it at an incline, and strike it. It always split cleanly and fast. She laid a wedge of wood under the chopping block near the furnace and placed the hatchet at an incline, its head resting on the wedge. Lizzie stepped into the wood cellar, back of the furnace, and reached into the old starch box where the hatchets were kept. She removed a large one that was standing, head down, one with a five-inch wide blade, and claw on one end. She felt it, it felt huge compared to the smaller one she had used. Walking back to the chopping block, she looked down at the small shingling hatchet and considered, I can't, and considered, I can't use the sharp blade edge, she thought. It will look cut. She turned the hatchet over to the square flat block edge of the blade where the claw turned down. She would hit the little hatchet near where the handle was thinnest, about four inches down from the blade. Parentheses, the hatchet breaking experiment is up on page 821. So, fairing the blade would flip up and cut her when she struck it. She placed her hands as far along the claw head handle as possible and stood back. Taking a deep breath, she raised it high above her head and swung it down hard on, on, on the shingling hatchet handle. A loud, a loud crack sounded and the head flew into the air, missing her by mere inches. The small chip of wood that had elevated the hatchet fell onto the floor. Lizzie picked up the head with two fingers and looked at it. It looked good. It looked like a break, not cut or sawn. She carefully picked up the handle, keeping her fingers at the top and, and bottom, and carried into and carried in the wood cellar to the starch box she had left sitting on the floor. Doing the same with the hatchet head, she placed them inside. She was pleased. While the ashes covering her hatchet looked somewhat different from the thin layer of dust coating the tops of the other tools, it might just pass. She quickly washed the claw head hatchet to remove some of the ashes that had transferred to it, and for extra measure, she swiped it down with a cloth to remove any fingerprints. Holding it with her skirt, she put it into the starch box. As she took a hasty look at the washroom to make sure all was in order, her eyes fell on the small wedge of wood. I picked up a chip from the floor, Lizzie said in her inquest testimony, always one for small details. She tossed the fragment in the, into the wood room and headed for the cellar stairs to the kitchen. Her heart racing, Lizzie rushed to the stove and lifted the lid. The roll of papers was smoking and smoldering, just about to catch. Hurry up, she thought desperately. She tiptoed quickly to the dining room. 
her breath catching as she, as she neared where her father lay. Without looking at him, she crossed through the sitting room and into the front entry, where she checked her reflection in the mirror of the hall tree. She pushed aside the small curls flanking her forehead. She could see no blood. Her dress had been completely covered by the coat, but she carefully looked it over anyway. There was coal ash flicking on the front of the skirt and the hem. Bridget felt the sweat trickle down along her neck. The attic was so close and stuffy. It was hard to sleep in the heat of the forenoon. Her mind went over her chores. The windows were done now for another week or two, depending on Abby's wishes. The attic wouldn't need it for another month. Tomorrow was just some light sweeping and Saturday some baking. The worst of the week was over, and she had tonight and half a Sunday off. She sighed with relief. Just as she felt herself becoming hazy, a shout from the back stairs jarred her awake. Maggie, Maggie, it was Miss Lizzie, hollering at the top of her lungs. Miss Lizzie rarely hollered. Something terrible must have happened. Heart pounding, Bridget ran to the top of the attic stairs and called down. What's wrong? Come down quick, Lizzie screamed. Father's dead. Someone's come in and killed him. Thursday, chapter 15. Thursday, August 4th, 1892. Where was you, Miss Lizzie? Bridget Sullivan hurried down the back stairway past her employer's shut bedroom door and around the bend to where she found Lizzie standing at the back screen door. Lizzie looked dazed and was leaning against the door's wooden frame. Miss Lizzie, what's the matter? Bridget asked breathless. She had never seen Lizzie Borden look so shaken. The girl never showed any emotion other than flashes of anger when things did not go her way. Go for Dr. Bowen as soon as you can. I think father is hurt. Bridget instinctually headed for, headed for the last place she had seen Mr. Borden, the sitting room. Lizzie stopped her. Oh, Maggie, don't go in. I must have a doctor. Go for Dr. Bowen. Bridget was confused. Lizzie had just yelled up the stairs that her father was dead, and someone had come in and killed him. It sounded more than, more than he was hurt. She passed Lizzie and hurried out the screen and hurried out the screen door, running for the doctor that lived only steps across the street to the north. Lizzie watched as Bridget's back disappeared. She turned to face the kitchen and saw the old lock sitting where she left it on the kitchen table. Quickly, she picked it up and ran to the back door. Looking about at the street and the windows of Mrs. Churchill's house, Lizzie hurried to the barn. She unlatched the hasp and stepped in only enough to toss the old Yale lock into a box of old truck a few feet from the door. It landed among a few other broken shop locks her father kept there, along with some sheets of iron and tin. Her gaze fell on the plumber's pipe, half hidden in the shadow. Someone closed the door nearby. She let it go and hurried out, pinning the door. Brushing the rust from her hand, she hurried back and entered the house. Leaning against the inside door to the back entry, she finally caught her breath. Her head spun. Her nerves were shattered. Had she really just butchered her father? Bridget pounded on the Bowen's door at 91 2nd Street. Finally, Phoebe Bowen, the doctor's wife, opened the door and looked in surprise as the hairy girl at the hairy girl standing there. Bridget sputtered out that Dr. Bowen was needed at the house. Mr. Borden was dead. Mrs. Bowen, taken aback, told her the doctor was out on calls, but as soon as he got back, she would send him right over. The time was shortly after 11. Bridget hurried back across the street, the dust from the road puffing up beneath her feet. She climbed the side steps to the screen door and found Lizzie where she had left her, leaning up against the wooden frame. The maid told Lizzie Dr. Borden was out, but that Mrs. Bowen 
said he would be back soon and she'd send him over. Miss Lizzie, where was you? British finally, Bridget finally asked. Didn't I leave the screen door hooked? I was out in the backyard and I heard a groan and came in. And the screen door was wide open, Lizzie said in a strained voice. Lizzie asked Bridget if she knew where Alice Russell lived. And the maid said she did. Go and get her, Lizzie said. I can't be alone in the house. Bridget grabbed a hat and shovel from the pegs in the back of the entry and hurried out the screen door. As soon as she left, Lizzie crossed to the stove and looked in. The roll, the roll of Swansea papers had finally caught and was burning. She worried about the smell of the burning paper that escaped slightly through the stove vent. There was nothing she could do about it now. At 11.10, Adelaide Churchill was returning up 2nd Street from M.T. Hudner's Market on South Main, only a quick walk from her house next door to the Bordens. Mrs. Churchill's house was still called the Buffington House, named for her late father, who had at one time been the mayor of Fall River and lived in the house in the mid-1800s. A widow, Adelaide Churchill, had her hands full caring for a house filled with relatives, a son and a handyman named Thomas Bowles. She had just purchased three, three items from, the, from Hunter's Meat Market at her noon meal and was walking home when she saw Bridget running frantically from Dr. Bowen's house toward the wardens. She looked frightened to me, Adelaide Churchill said during her preliminary hearing testimony. Mrs. Churchill entered her gate and carried the groceries into her kitchen at the south side of the house. She placed the parcels on a long bench beneath the window facing the Borden's dining room window. She then stepped to a window further east and looked out to see Lizzie, standing inside the back screen door of her home. She looked as if she was distressed or frightened about something. Mrs. Churchill testified. Okay. She was leaning against the side of the door. I do not know, but she put her hand to her head and looked as if she was distressed. I opened one of the windows and said, Lizzie, what's the matter? She said, oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Bridget hurried to the house at the corner of 2nd Street and Borden, and Borden, only a few houses down from the Bordens. It was the wrong house. Mrs. Churchill ran, ran, ran through her house yelling, Mr. Borden's been murdered, shocking Mrs. John Gumley, who was in the dining room pushing a sick baby to and fro. She ran through her gate and into the Borden side yard. When she opened the screen door, she found Lizzie sitting on the second stair of the back staircase, directly right of the entry door. Oh, Lizzie, Mrs. Churchill said, placing her hand on Lizzie's arm. Where is your father? In the sitting room, Lizzie said in a strained voice. Where was you when it happened? Adelaide asked breathlessly. I went to the barn to get a piece of iron and came back, heard a distressed noise and came in and found the screen door open, Lizzie said. Where is your mother? She had a note to go see someone that was sick. I don't know, but that she was killed too. I wish someone would try to find Mrs. Borden, for I thought I heard her come in. Father must have an enemy, for we have all been sick, and they thought and they thought the milk had been poisoned. Dr. Bowen is not home. Lizzie continued on in a rush of words. I must have a doctor. Shall I go to try to find someone to get a doctor? Yes. Adelaide hurried diagonally across the street to Ellie Hill Hall's livery stable, where her, hand, where her handyman, Thomas Bowles, had just taken her carriage after washing it. She asked Mr. Hall for Thomas. When she found him, she blurted out, Thomas, will you go and try and find a doctor? Somebody has killed Mr. Borden. Any doctor. Just a few houses over from them and across the street, Bridget had hurried to the home at the corner of 2nd Street in Borden in search of Mrs. Ru of Miss Russell. Thomas hurried off and ran into Bridget, who had just found she had the wrong house. She asked him if he knew where Miss Russell lived, 
and he gave her directions. Meanwhile, Lizzie was alone in the house. As Bridget hurried up Borden Street toward Alice Russell's house, the rumor of Andrew Borden's murder was spreading beyond the door of, of Hall Stable. John J. Cunningham, a freelance writer in the newspaper business, had just walked up to, up to Hall's, where he saw Mrs. Churchill speaking excitedly to some men. He asked what was the matter, and a boy by the name of Albert Pierce told him that someone had stabbed A.J. Borden at his house. Mr. Cunningham darted into the Gorman's paint store a few steps away at the corner of 2nd and Borden Streets and telephoned what he had heard, first to John Manning at the Fall River Daily Globe, Mr. Stevens at the Fall River News, and finally to Marshall Hilliard in the Central Police Station. Edwin Porter, a police reporter for the Fall River Globe, covered the news for the, for the police in the guise of an investigative reporter. He would later write the first book on the Borden murders called The Fall River Tragedy, A History of the Borden Murders one that caused Lizzie Borden great angst. It was 11.15 in the morning when the phone shrilled in, the Marshall, in Marshall Hilliard's office. Alice Russell was doing my work near her window overlooking the front walk when she saw a breathless Bridget Sullivan coming racing up to her door. With Lizzie's tales of poison from the night before still ringing in her ears, Alice feared the family had taken a turn for the worse. She left her accounting books to hurry to the door before Bridget could knock. Could knock. What is it, Bridget? Are they worse? Alice asked. Bridget, out of breath and panting, said, Yes, he is worse. I don't know, but Mr. Borden is dead, she said ominously. Alice stared, hoping the maid was exaggerating. She assured Bridget she would be right over as soon as she changed her dress. Bridget took off on the run again as Alice dashed into her small bedroom upstairs to change into her street clothes. Dr. Seabury Bowen arrived home in his house and buggy in his horse and buggy to find his wife hurrying down the steps to catch him before he alighted. His driver, James Leonard, told the police Mrs. Bowen said something terrible has happened to the Bordens and to go right over. Dr. Bowen, like Alice, assumed it was something to do with the food poisoning from the day before, yet there was something in his wife's urgency that concerned him. Surely no one had died from no no one had died from the malady. It was now 11.25. For the past ten minutes, Lizzie Borden had been alone in the house. She had plenty of time to make sure all the loose ends were tied up. She walked through the dining room and peered with a tight stomach into the sitting room, avoiding looking at the prone body on the sofa. Nothing seemed out of place. The blood splattering the, blood splattering the closed parlor door turned her stomach. It was too real, too graphic, and final. As she returned to the kitchen through the dining room, she absentmindedly picked up the small ironing board and carried it to the kitchen table. The smell of burning paper scented the air as she lifted the stove lid to peer inside, all the while keeping an eye on the screen door. The Swansea deed was still burning through the tightly rolled layers of papers, most of it blackened and leaving only a ring of white paper at its center. Lizzie heard voices shouting outside. The news was out. Replacing the stove lid, she hurried back to the rear door and sat on the second stair next to it, where Mrs. Churchill had left her. Adelaide Churchill hurried back to the Bordens, entering through the screen door. She told Lizzie people were looking for a doctor. She was unaware Dr. Bowen had just pulled up in his buggy across the street. Seabury Bowen stepped down from the carriage and hurried across second. 
He was a man of medium height. We whiskered in the style of the day with mutton chops and sported a high collar. His face was warm, a kind patience, fine comforting. He had known Lizzie and her family for 20 years. He was not prepared for what he was about to find. Bridget hurried up 2nd Street without waiting for Miss Russell. She hadn't run this much in a long time. Her head was swimming from the heat, exertion, and the remains of the stomach. And of the stomach flu she had been fighting all day. Up ahead, she saw Dr. Boland step down from his buggy and haste across the street. Thank goodness, Bridget thought. He will know what to do. Dr. Bowen opened the screen door and entered without waiting for an invitation. Mrs. Churchill and Lizzie were still in the back entry. A few minutes later, Bridget came in the back door. What is the matter, Lizzie? Dr. Bowen asked breathlessly. I am afraid father has been stabbed or hurt, she said. After recovering from the shock of hearing of stabbing, instead of a man suffering from poisoning, the doctor asked, where is he? The sitting room, Lizzie said beckoning for Dr. Bowen to follow her through the dining room instead of opening the sitting room door leading from the kitchen. It may have been to spare Mrs. Churchill and Bridget, or that she couldn't bear to see her father like that again. The three women followed Dr. Bowen into the dining room and waited as he continued into the sitting room. Lizzie held her breath. It would be the first reaction to what she had done. Seabury Bowen bent over the ruined head of the man he had spoken to on this very sofa only the morning before. He did not recognize Andrew Borden. The gashes were so severe that only a fraction of the man's upturned face remained. Only a glimpse of the right side of his features pressed into the decorative pillow resembled the austere businessman he had known for so long. The doctor felt, felt for a pulse in a necessary but instinctual routine. He found none. He realized he was visibly shaken. Murder victims, and ones as brutally mutilated as this, were not his daily experience. He was the world of pill bottles and remedies, stitches and delivering babies. He walked nervously back into the dining room, where three expectant faces turned toward him. He is murdered. He is murdered, Dr. Bowen said. That is just awful. He turned to Lizzie and asked, has there been anybody here? Not as I know it, Lizzie said. I overheard father several times talking loud recently, and I was afraid some of the tenants had trouble with him. Parentheses, Attorney Knowlton hit the point hard during the trial that Lizzie offered the information to Mrs. Churchill and Dr. Bowen within minutes of their seeing her. Father has an enemy. Dr. Bowen looked at Mrs. Churchill and said, Addie, come and see Mr. Borden. Ad <laughs> Adelaide Churchill recoiled. Oh no, doctor, I don't want to see him. I looked at him out in the yard this morning. He looked nice to me. I don't want to see him. Perhaps it's just as well, Dr. Bowen said. Mrs. Church, Mrs. Dr. Bowen said. Mrs. Churchill's remark brought him back to the delicate situation at hand with so many women in the house. He, he asked for a sheet to cover Mr. Borden. Bridget said the sheets were kept in the bedclothes drawers in Mrs. Borden's dressing room, and they would need a key to get into the locked room. Dr. Bowen went in the sitting room and reached up into the Prince Albert coat, rolled beneath the dead man's head. As he did so, Andrew's body slid down somewhat lower on the couch, onto the couch. Finding no keys, he gently felt into Andrew Borden's pants pockets. Finding never any keys, Dr. Bowen returned and handed them to Bridget. She told him that was not what they needed. It was a single key, she told him, sitting on the mantel in the room where Andrew lay. She brought out the key and handed it to her. He brought out the key and handed it to her. 
Bridget was nervous about going upstairs alone. Mrs. Churchill offered to go with her. The two mounted the back stairs, slowly, ner slowly, nervously listening for sounds in the attic or any movements that might betray a murderer secluded in the shadowy recesses of the stairwell. They unlocked the, door, the warden's bedroom door and the second landing and went in. There was no Abby. They went to the bureau in the small room and opened the drawer with the clean linens. As the two women went about their tasks, Lizzie quickly asked a favor of her neighbor, Dr. Bowen, as they waited in, in the dining room. Would he please contact her uncle, John Morris, to let him know Mr. Borden's dead? He is in town and visiting at the Emery's on Waybosset, she explained quickly. She kept her voice low. Do you think two sheets will do, Bridget asked Mrs. Churchill in Abby's dressing room, wanting to hurry and return to the safety of the kitchen? I would think one would cover a body, Mrs. Churchill said, the word body feeling foreign on her tongue. She shuddered. Bridget took two... Took two and okay, Bridget took two anyway. Perhaps in a moment of clairvoyance, as there would soon be two bodies to deal with. They left the rooms and relocked the door to the landing. Mrs. Churchill and Bridget handed Dr. Bowen the sheets. He took one and went in the sitting room. Mrs. Churchill left the other on the dining room table. Lizzie called, called Bridget into the, into the kitchen. A few minutes later, Bridget called to Mrs. Churchill, who had remained in the, waiting in the dining room. Almost before Mrs. Churchill stepped in the kitchen, Bridget, obviously nervous, said, Mrs. Borden had a note to go see someone that was sick. She was dusting in the sitting room as she hurried off. She did not tell me where she was going. She usually does. If Adelaide Churchill thought this sudden revelation strange, it was probably one of the many strange occurrences happening on this macabre day. Lizzie suddenly blurted, I shall have to go to the cemetery myself. Oh no, Mrs. Churchill assured her quickly. Lizzie, the undertaker, will attend to all such things. As that for you, they generally do. Alice Russell, her prim hat and visiting dress arrayed as, nice, arrayed as nicely as she could have managed with shaking hands, hurried along the upward slant, <clears throat> slanting of the Borden's house, streets of the Borden's house. Her mind was in a daze. Was Lizzie's story of an enemy and poisoning true? Charles Sawyer, a beefy decorative painter who lived nearby on 2nd Street, had heard the news. He was at the machine shop of Augustus C. Rich at 81 Second Street, above Hall Stables, when he saw Alice Russell hurrying up the street. Knowing she was a friend of the Bordens, he hurried across Second Street in an attempt to learn what was going on. Miss Russell was in no mood to talk. She answered his queries with vague and breathless bursts. As she reached the Bordens' house, entering in through the north gate, Sawyer gave up and turned away. Just then, Officer Allen from the police station hurried up second, and told Sawyer to come along with him to the Bordens. Alice opened the screen door and stepped into the back entry, not knowing what to expect. She saw Lizzie leaning against the kitchen doorframe at the end of the entry hall. Lizzie, Alice said, sit right down here in the kitchen. She sat down in the rocker, and I sat down next to her in the chair, Alice testified days later at the coroner's inquest. Lizzie laid her head on Alice's shoulder. Mrs. Churchill took a towel and wet one end of it. She bathed Lizzie's forehead and cheeks. The kitchen was stifling hot, particularly due to Lizzie's attempt to restart a fire in the stove. The smell of burning paper had dissipated. The two women fanned her with a newspaper until Lizzie asked Bridget to get a fan from the dining room closet. Rubber hands, Alice instructed Mrs. Churchill, as she feared Lizzie was faint. As Addie reached for Lizzie's hands to do so, Lizzie shook her head, no. Dr. Bowen took one of the sheets and covered Andrew, watching 
as the fresh blood quickly soaked through the linen weave at his head. Just then, a man in plain clothes appeared at the back door, along with Charles Sawyer. Dr. Bowen said they couldn't come in, and that he needed a policeman. Sawyer informed the doctor that the other man was a policeman. Dr. Bowen left, let him in. Officer Allen was led into the sitting room by the, by the doctor while Charles Sawyer waited outside. The physician pulled back the sheet and showed the astonished officer the bloody remains of Andrew Borden. The partly man gulped. He was merely a clerk at the police station, one who checked prisoners in and out. This was the sight he was not used to seeing. Now you go back and tell Marshal Hilliard all about it, Bowen said. Officer Allen walked shakily through the house, where he barely registered seeing Lizzie sitting at the table. He checked the closets by the front door, the one in the dining room, and the other places where someone might be hiding on the first floor. Finding no one, he hurried to the back entry. He passed out through the screen door and told Charles Sawyer to guard it. Don't let anyone in but police, he told the surprised young man. With rubbery knees, Allen half walked, half ran, back to make a dramatic report to Marshal Hilliard. Charles Sawyer stepped inside the door and peered down the back entry in, into the kitchen. Miss Borden sat in a chair in the kitchen, Sawyer testified at the coroner's inquest, five days after the murders. She seemed to be considerable excited. I thought, as though she was apparently grief-stricken or something, although I might not be a judge in that respect. She seemed to be considerably excited and very uneasy, and the lady seemed to be, mis to be ministering to her that is bathing her face. I can't say that she was crying. I could not tell exactly. I did not go way into the kitchen at all until after that some a little time. I stood near that door. You know, that is quite a little entryway. The servant girl appeared to be well. Mr. Sawyer continued, somewhat frightened. I thought she acted as though she was considerably excited, although she talked intelligently anything that was said to her. And she seemed very willing to give any information that she knew anything about. I heard her say something about Mrs. Borden saying she had received a note, but I can't seem to recollect just how she put it, whether you know, whether she said Mrs. Borden told her or somebody else told her. I also heard Mrs. Churchill mention that fact. When Charles Sawyer was, in essence, deputized to guard the back door, he knew very little of what had happened within the walls of the Borden home. His nerves were on edge. All he knew was a man had been stabbed, Within the last half hour, half half an hour, what if the knife wielding man was still in the house? He eyed the open cellar door, only steps away. When no one was looking, he hurriedly pulled the basement door closed and bolted it. Doctor Bowen replaced the sheet across the still form of Andrew Borden and walked into the kitchen. Lizzie suddenly asked, as if he would, asked if he would please go and telegraph her sister Emma, who was staying at the at the Brownells in Fairhaven. Don't tell her the worst, she said, as there is a feeble old lady there, and it would, it would shock her. No mention was made ever again of the presence of Mrs. Churchill and Bridget, of contacting her Uncle John. I will do anything for you, Dr. Poland said sincerely, and hurried out to carry out his two, his two directives. Officer Allen not far behind him, or not far ahead of him. Bridget thought suddenly of Mrs. Borden. Miss Lizzie, if I knew where Mrs. Whitehead, Abby's half-sister, was, I would go and see if Mrs. Borden was there and tell her that Mr. Borden was very sick. Lizzie paused and said, Maggie, I am almost positive I heard her coming in. Would you go upstairs to see? I'm not going up there alone, Bridget cried. She and Mrs. Churchill had already been in Abby's bedroom up the back stairs. 
That left only the rooms at the top of the front steps. Come on, Bridget, Mrs. Churchill said. I'll go with you. The two women buoyed themselves up for the passage through the sitting room, keeping their eyes focused on the open door to the front hall entry. They hurried through and walked to the base of the front stairs, looking up the winding stairway they hesitated. Both were praying Abby Borden was still out on the sick call. It is interesting to note that, Bridget, Bridget, that Bridget's first thought of where Abby Borden had gone on that sick call was to her half-sister Bertie. Whiteheads on 4th Street, knowing Mrs. Borden had a few friends other than Mrs. Miller across the street, and a few nodding relationships with other neighbors. Bridget thought it was the only logical place her employer could be. People did not send for someone to come and help them unless they were very, very close. Lizzie hurries and changes the direction of the conversation, sending the woman off to look for Abby within the house. Chapter 16 Thursday, August 4th, 1892. Is there another? As Bridget and Mrs. Churchill climbed the front stairway, Alice Russell waited with Lizzie in the kitchen. She fanned her, fanned her continually as the thick heat of the room threatened to rob them of breath. Charles Sawyer stole a glance at them from time to time, wondering what had happened inside the modest house. He managed to ask Mrs. Churchill as she went about the kitchen, Is he dead? Oh, yes, he's dead, she answered later that, later that morning. Dr. Bowen asked him to come in and see the murdered man. Sawyer saw a sheet with some blood on it and was shown the butchered head of Henry Borden. Charles Sawyer watched the side yard from inside the door. Small boys, one he recognized as Augustus Rich's son, were running through the yard, and several men had walked through as well. He hoped some reinforcements were on their way as people were continually coming up to him and asking to be let in. One man, stating his name was John Manning, and that he was a reporter with the Fall River Daily Herald, was told he could not enter. The dogged journalist planted himself on the side steps. John Cunningham, the man who had first phoned the marshal after hearing of Mrs. Churchill's claim that Mr. Borden was dead, had himself meandered over to the house. He walked in the backyard and, spying the door to the cellar, reached over and tried the handle. It was locked tight. Other would-be detectives were trying hard to peer under the windows through the half-closed shutters and lace curtains. It was only the beginning of the crowds that were to come running at the shout of murder. Bridget and Adelaide Churchill climbed the front stairs slowly, peering up through the spindles, watching for any sign of movement. Bridget was a few steps ahead of the older woman when Mrs. Churchill happened to look to her left through the stairwell railing and into the open door of the guest room. The light was not as strong inside the room, but she could see beneath the guest bed. She suddenly stopped and gasped. There was no mistaking a prostrate form lying on the floor on the other side of the large bed. She went no farther. Bridget turned to see the whitened face of the lady behind her. Following Mrs. Churchill's gaze to the bed, the maid suddenly bolstered her courage and darted into the room. She stepped to the end of the bed frame and looked down on the still, fo on the still form splayed across the carpet something round and black spilling off from her head. Adelaide, finding her feet, hurried down the front stairs. In her haste to get back to the kitchen, she forgot to avert her eyes as she bolted into the sitting room. Two legs, bent at an angle, their feet resting on the floor before, were before her. The rest of the body was beneath the white sheet, its head area covered in blood. Her heart gave way, and she stumbled into the kitchen, where she finally doubled over. 
letting out a small shriek. What is it? Alice asked in alarm. Is there another? Mrs. Churchill nodded, her hand to her stomach. She's upstairs, she finally managed, holding on to the doorframe. Lizzie was pale. Alice Russell looked at her, and her instincts took over her own quaking nerves. Let's go into the dining room, Lizzie. It will be cooler there. Lizzie allowed the woman to lead her into the dining room. She threw herself down on the lounge. Go and get Mrs. Bowen, Lizzie told Bridget in a strained voice, and the maid returned to the room. As the maid returned to the room, Bridget may have supposed Lizzie meant for Mrs. Bowen to inform her husband that Abby had been found and needed attention. Without waiting for further instructions, the maid ran out the screen door and passed the confused Charles Sawyer standing there. Mrs. Churchill stepped forward and told him Mrs. Borden is dying, I think from shock. Lizzie has Ellis Russell and Adelaide Churchill with her. While she does ask Bridget to go and get Mrs. Bowen, could it be due to Abby's visit to the Bowen house the day before, claiming the family was being poisoned? Did Lizzie want yet another witness in the house when the police came testifying the family had an enemy? According to the witness statements supplied by the Fall River Police Department, Bridget came out of the house on a run and went over to Southland H. Miller's house and went in. Soon after, Mr. Miller came to the door and called Alexander B. Cogshall, a stable keeper on 2nd Street, who had stopped to talk to Mrs. Buffington in front of Mrs. Churchill's house. Here, Alex, I want you to listen to what this girl says. Bridget then told him that Mr. Borden and his wife had been murdered, had both been murdered. Mr. Cogshall then went to dinner at Mrs. Tripp's restaurant next door to the Churchill's at 82nd Street, and he told her of the murder. It was, it was then 11.20 by the clock of the restaurant. Southern Miller had known the Bordens the longest. He had employed Andrew Borden as a young carpenter years before the ambitious man made his fortune. Miller had built the house in which the two bodies now lay. He listened in astonishment to Bridget's breathless tale. Phoebe Bowen, overhearing the fuss, walked quickly over to the Borden home. She had known the family well and had just the day before admitted a sick and frightened Abby Borden into her parlor to see her husband. Dr. Bowen was still out on Lizzie's errand to telegraph her sister, Emma, in Fairhaven and to contact her uncle, John Morris, at the Emory's on Waybosset Street. According to Dr. Bowen's testimonies, he sent the telegram to Emma, time-stamped 1132, at the Western Union Telegraph Company in the Richard Borden block and walked across the street to Baker's Drugstore. There he spoke to his friend, Mr. Samuel Flint, before returning to the Borden house. According to Mrs. Daniel Emory, the good doctor had also slipped in, in a visit to her house during his errands to see to her ailing visitor. That John Morris was also there was a fortunate coincidence. She said the two did not meet, although they came and went through the same door seconds apart. Dr. Seabury Bowen returned up 2nd Street shortly before 1140. He had reached John Morris by telephone at the Emory's and possibly spoken to him privately outside the house after he took a look at Annie Morris. It was lying, excuse me, it was lying ill on, on the sitting room sofa. According to police and Edwin Porter, the police reporter for the Globe, who interviewed Morris that day, Uncle John knew of Andrew's murder by 11.30. Morris told Porter he had been telephoned for, and that was when he first learned of the murder. When he arrived at the Borden house around 15 to 25 minutes later, he had not been told Abby was dead as well. Dr. Bowen climbed wearily, Wearily from the buggy, leaving James Leonard, the driver, in charge of the team. He entered through the board and screen door to find Charles Sawyer still at his post. He had barely made it into the entry 
away when Mrs. Churchill came running up to him. They have found Mrs. Borden, she told him. Where? Dr. Dr. Bowen asked in shock. Upstairs in the front room. You better go up. When Bowen entered the guest room at the top of the stairs, he first noticed how dim the light was. The north shutters facing Mrs. Churchill's were almost closed, casting the room with subdued shadows. At first, he saw nothing to alarm him. Dr. Seabury, Bowen's preliminary hearing testimony. I went up the front stairs. As I got at the top of the stairs, as soon as I got on the, t- on the second story, I could look right over the bed, and I saw her lying there, flat prone. My thought was that she had run up there and fainted. I went right around the foot of the bed and satisfied myself in an instant that she was not living. I don't know whether I got to hold, I got hold of her purse, but I satis- her pulse, I'm sorry, but I satisfied myself some way. I don't know how, that she was not living. I went right downstairs again and told them Mrs. Borden was dead, killed the same instant. I think I said that. When I came down, my wife was there, and I told her to go right home. Dr. Bowen changed his story during the Superior Court trial a year later in an effort to appear as if he had handled it better. He said he had placed his hand on her head and felt the cuts there. He testified he felt of her right wrist for a pulse and found none. He also changed his story that he said they were killed the same instant. He now stated they were killed with the same instrument. As by then, it was accepted knowledge, Abby died at least an hour and a half ahead of her husband. Phoebe Bowen had only been in the house a few minutes. She was standing behind Lizzie, who was lying on the dining room lounge, where Alice and Mrs. Churchill were still trying to make to make her as comfortable as possible. The tension in the room was heavy as the women waited for Dr. Bowen to return from upstairs. When Phoebe Bowen's husband finally came down and made the announcement that Mrs. Borden was dead also, Mrs. Bowen let out a gasp and became upset. Lizzie asked who that was that just made the sound behind her. Miss Russell explained it was Phoebe Bowen. Dr. Bowen sent his wife home, perhaps to man the office phone line, or possibly because his wife was not helping the situation by becoming emotional. Phoebe Bowen testified later that they sent me home. They said I was not fit to stay. Okay, we're going to stop there, and uh, we'll continue next week. And it continues with the police investigation. In fact, the next um, <clears throat> overhead part of the chapter is police and questions. So yeah, I didn't even think about that. Today's Father's Day. Wow, the timing of everything. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming today for this part of Lizzie Borden. This is a long book, and uh, I know when I asked the author for permission to read it, she said, wow, that's a really long book, and I said, that's okay. We're, you know, we'll get through it. So that'll be part seven um, next week. Tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, we're going to have Stan Gordon here, and he is going to be talking about the Thunderbird, the legendary Thunderbird and other big birds, big giant bird creatures that people have been seeing, you know, in the woods and stuff. So we're going to be talking about that tomorrow. I want to thank everybody for coming today. I know it's Sunday. You know, you guys are having your dinners and doing everything, and it's Father's Day. At least I think it's, it's Father's Day, right? Yeah. I lose track. Um, anyway, so I want to thank you all. So if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people anyway. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. Uh, if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. Uh, hit that little guy that's down at the bottom right-hand corner. The one with the uh, Sherlock Holmes hat and the magnifying glass. And if you're watching from YouTube, uh, from uh, Facebook and, and uh <laughs> 
<laughs> if you're watching from Facebook, uh, please um, please follow. That I would really appreciate it. And if you're watching from Twitch, please follow. I'd appreciate it. But I want to thank you guys for coming. And like I said, I will be back tomorrow with uh, Stan Gordon to talk about the mysterious Thunderbirds. All right? And you do see that thing at the bottom. And that's because California Haunts works on donations. Uh, that's how we do all our cases. And, and sometimes we can use some help. Um, you know, running this show also has to be done by donation. I'm retired coming out of my pocket. All this comes out of my pocket. So if you could find it in your heart to help me out with internet costs and things like that, that would be great. I'd really appreciate it. It doesn't have to be a lot, but I, you know, I'd really appreciate it. And you can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts or Venmo and then California Haunts. It's all good. You know, I'd be really, like I said, I would really appreciate it. Um, again, thank you so much for coming and uh, follow, like, remember to like, like, like the show, follow, you know, uh, Subscribe and all that, but I will see you on. I will see you tomorrow. Tuesday, Monday. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow at uh, six thirty p.m. Pacific. Have a good one, guys.